Hi, I'm Gary, and this is episode 166 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles, and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today, we'll be looking at electric car insurance. This season of the podcast is sponsored by ZapMap, the free-to-download app that helps EV drivers search, plan, and pay for their charging. Before we start, I wanted to remind you that we have Kate Tyrrell from ChargeSafe back on the show in a couple of weeks' time. She'll be taking us through the progress her company has made in raising the issue of safety and accessibility at chargers. Our main topic of discussion today is electric car insurance. If you run a car in the UK, and indeed just about anywhere, you'll need car insurance. Although it seems like one of those things that everybody complains about and it's a pain in the neck, it is very important. I once heard somebody say, everybody complains about having to pay insurance, but without it, the world would grind to a halt. Imagine knowing that if you had an accident and there was no such thing as insurance, you personally will be liable for the cost of all recovery, vehicle repairs, medical bills, street furniture bills, and personal liability in case of injury to a third party. I mean, if you're in a little fender bender at a roundabout and you bump the car in front or get bumped from behind, it's going to cost you anything from a couple of hundred pounds to a couple of thousand to repair your car. A replacement window on my Kia Soul last year would have been £709 without insurance cover. But if you're in a big accident, it could be enormous. I know someone who was T-boned at a red light by a Mercedes driver. He heavily damaged his car, wrote off my friend's car, and pushed him into the path of an oncoming vehicle that wrote off that car. Two people ended up in hospital with whiplash and facial skin damage, etc. The insurance covered all of that. But without it, someone's been landed with a very large bill. So today we're looking at insurance, and particularly at insurance on your electric car. I want to caveat all this by saying that any figures that might get quoted here are purely indicative. As with all insurance quotes, they very much depend on your age, driving history, location, vehicle, and type of coverage you're looking for. Now, this was all triggered because my car insurance came up for renewal recently. I have a mixed history with car insurance. Back when I drove Porsche 911s, I was paying a quite serious amount of money every year for insurance. When that was written off in an aquaplane accident in 2007, I went to a Honda Civic. The insurance was a lot lower on that, but still moderately high because I'd just written off an expensive Porsche. Over the years, my no claims bonus has built up and my premium has decreased. Even when I went to, quote, an expensive EV, I paid more or less the same as when I had a 13-year-old Civic. In fact, last year, when I swapped my Kia Soul for a new ID3 mid-year, I actually got £9 back from the insurance company in the form of a premium refund. So I was looking forward to seeing what the premium would be at renewal in December. It had jumped almost 23% from around £330 to over £407. I was, of course, a little shocked. But in the big scheme of things, £400 for fully comprehensive car insurance on a brand new, fairly expensive electric car wasn't a deal breaker. I shopped around a bit, got a few quotes. Then I called my current company and asked and asked if that's the best they could do 
and they dropped it down to 386. Anyway, today I want to talk about EV insurance. How is it uh, calculated? Is it true that premiums can rise during the year for no apparent reason? And why do companies quote you one figure for renewing your premium, but will drop that if you call and haggle with them? Right, I'm joined today by uh, Alexandra Hammond Chambers Borgness, or as she likes to be called, Alex. Welcome, uh, Alex. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Can you start just by telling the listeners who you are, what do you do, what's your official title and and what does that involve, please? Sure. So um, I look after um, underwriting for LV insurance. So my team look after all of the the risks we underwrite, um, making sure we're providing the right cover and products. And part of that is looking after our um, specific insurance for electric vehicles. So we design the product and make sure that we're offering it to the right customers. EV insurance, like a lot of insurance, seems to the outsider to be a little bit of a dark art. Um, I've had situations where I've changed vehicle halfway through a year to a, a newer, more ex- uh, expensive vehicle and actually had the insurance premium drop. And I've also seen people who've had their insurance premiums double on some cars. Give me, can you give me an insurance 101 and how a, how a premium is determined, either generally in the industry or specifically with LV, please? Yeah, sure. So... I have to probably caveat before we start that for every insurer, the, the risk elements, so the factors they look up to make up price will will vary. But I think in, in general terms, the best way to think about risk is it's, it's really how likely a person or, or um, a situation is going to give rise to a claim and then how expensive that claim is going to be. And so... When you think about those those price changes you might see, um, sometimes people think, oh, nothing's changed. I'm, I'm the same person driving the same car or I'm the same person, but I'm driving a similar car. Whereas actually, perhaps the parts on that vehicle, the new vehicle you've bought might be more expensive or it might be the safety, the technology on that vehicle is is making it less likely to have a crash. And all of those things will be taken into account when pulling together the the final premium that's offered to a customer. So it could be any one of a number of things around your personal circumstances. It could be things like your age. You know, every every year we all age by a year. Um, and, And it might be for a particular insurer, they'll have a threshold where they'll go, actually, you've reached the point where you're a lower risk or you might have perhaps been caught speeding in the year, or you might have moved to a riskier area of the country, an area of country where, for example, you're more likely that your vehicle will be stolen, or you're driving in higher traffic density, and therefore you're more likely to be in a little knock. So all of those things will be taken into account, and that's why for each individual it's quite difficult to say, this thing will definitely make the change because it is so specific. That sort of opens up a little can of worms and I'm going to delve in ever so slightly. Talk to me about things like a no claims bonus. Now, looking at this from the outside, surely from a risk point of view, someone who hasn't had an accident for, say, five years is statistically more likely to have one than someone who had one eight months ago. So what's the thinking behind a no claims bonus? Why would you say they're statistically more likely to have one? All right. Well, let me rephrase that. 
why would the premium decrease if the statistic isn't decrease if the risk isn't decreasing so is the underlying premise that that you've mentioned there that everyone will have a certain number of accidents in their driving career no not necessarily but am i right in thinking that the reason you get a no claims bonus is because statistically an underwriter will think that because you haven't had to have a claim there is a likelihood that you won't have that claim or is that flawed thinking so i think a no claims discount is linked to obviously the fact that you haven't claimed and therefore you are less likely to claim in the future and so your your good driving behavior is rewarded and if you're less likely to claim in the future how is that linked into the risk of actually having an accident is there a greater risk of having an accident or a, a lower risk of having an accident if you haven't had one for five years if you are in a situation where you are on nine years no claims discount for example because you've had almost 10 years of not having a claim then you're in a situation where you're probably a relatively safe driver and therefore you are receiving a discount on your premium to reflect the fact that you are a relatively safe driver. I think the statistics around who is likely to have a claim in a year will have multiple <laughs> multiple factors that will feed into it. And obviously a claim can arise from something that's not your fault. So somebody could crash into you or your car could get stolen. But your no claims discount will be on the basis that you as an individual have had a no claims history, i.e. you haven't made a claim for a certain period, and therefore your premium you're paying is, is lower. So the, the risk aspect of the potential for you having a claim is unrelated to the period during which you haven't had a claim. So your no claims discount is rewarding you for not having a claim regardless of what the potential risk is of you having a claim in the next 12 months? I'm not sure the two things are completely unrelated. I'd be interested to know, is there a specific scenario you're concerned about or is there a specific area that you're wanting to dig into? No, I th it, it's more of a general, um, you know, I mean, I, I'm very lucky, touch wood, I've got 9, 10, 11 years, no claims discount, and my premium has been reduced every year as a result of that. But in reality, the risk of me making a claim in the next 12 months has not changed, has it? it it's no greater on all, or no less than potentially anyone who may have had a, um, a bump in the last 12 months. Or is that flawed thinking again? So I think that the risk associated with any individual making a claim is obviously made up of a number of factors, but it is likely that somebody who has had an incident their likelihood to have another one will be raised for for a number of factors for a number of reasons so I, I I'm not sure it's quite as simple as if you haven't had a claim you'll never have a claim or you've had a claim you'll definitely have another one but I think there are correlations there that that would drive the thinking around rewarding that good driving behavior.
because it's reflective of somebody who is, you know, not not having claims, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, well, let's let's sort of move on a little bit because on a sort of similar topic, what would cause, for example, a light flight premium to increase 23% year on year? Same person, same vehicle, nothing's changed. That person may have aged a year. They may have gone over into a, a you know, another year bracket, but it, are there any underlying reasons that would cause premiums to rise um, that are not necessarily related to the individual themselves? Premiums will rise in relation to inflation and the cost of repairing vehicles. So as I'm sure you're well aware, there's been a, a part supply and vehicle shortage issue really for the last two years in the UK. And that will mean that the cost of servicing claims will go up, um, which means premiums, unfortunately, will have to rise. There'll be other factors relating, for example, to a rise in insurance premiums tax. So if insurance premium tax goes up, then that has to be passed through to the end customer. There might also be changes in view of risk, so not related to a specific customer, but for example, if a vehicle um, manufacturer, the, the security on a vehicle is compromised and we find out that it's a much higher risk of theft, for example, or if some new technology is implemented that means it's much safer, then that may change the view of risk of that vehicle. So there can be kind of general market trends around parts supply repairability and then there can be vehicle specific changes that wouldn't necessarily be related to a particular customer. You may also find um, area of the country makes a difference. So for example, if um, somebody is living in an area where criminal gangs are operating and they're targeting a particular type of vehicle, that could potentially cause um, premiums to rise in a specific area. Just touching on the technology aspect there, how effective are the so-called black boxes for young drivers in cars? So telematics boxes. That's the phrase I'm looking for, yes. <laughs> sure. So I think it, it would probably depend a little bit on what you mean by effective. I think that a lot of young people are very comfortable to fit a telematics device or download an app to their smartphone to use to measure their driving behavior and receive a discount. For a number of people, it makes insurance more affordable for them as individuals. Um, I know that also a number of parents or, or the people in young people's lives will be very reassured by knowing how they're driving and, and that their driving is being monitored. I think in terms of uptake of telematics policies, we also know that it's not for everyone. Not not everybody wants their driving monitored. And so actually it's it's really about choice. For me, the, the important thing with telematics is that it's a choice for individuals to make as to whether they'd like to fit that technology into their vehicles. Now, I mentioned telematics in relation to young people, but is this a sort of technology that any driver can ha can take advantage of? So I think there are products in the market. So on our kind of LV direct proposition, we don't have um, a telematics product at the moment. That's not to say that we won't look at propositions in the future if it's the right thing and our customers want it. But we are aware that there are um, new entrants in the market who are using 
telematics type technology for things like pay as you go, you know, so trying to reduce the cost of insurance by people paying only as much as they drive. And for, for a number of customers, that might well be the right thing for them. But obviously, it's it's the pros and cons for each individual regarding the potential discounts versus obviously the monitoring of their driving. What factors play into pricing for a premium for an EV that don't play into the factors for pricing an internal combustion engine car? Can you can you talk a little bit about those differences, please? Yeah, sure. So I I don't actually think the factors themselves are that different. You know, we're still going to look at who's driving, what they're driving for. We're still going to look at um, all the factors relating to the vehicle that we would have done before. So the value of the vehicle, the vehicle acceleration, weight, all of those different things to make up the, the risk view. I think the the thing that's different with electric vehicles is obviously they are much quicker at the low end. You know, they are generally more valuable you know so the market price of an electric vehicle in a kind of standard range ev might be higher than its than its ice counterpart so really the the skill for us is making sure that we're setting a premium that's reasonable and commensurate for the the risk we're seeing and we may that does mean we might have to make some choices in terms of the weighting we put against different factors so we might not choose to look at um, vehicle value as much as we might have done previously because we know that being new vehicles we, we want to support their adoption and make sure customers have access to insurance but I think in terms of the the factors we use and the elements we look at they they are probably broadly the same. Would something like for example the one of the latest model uh, the Model Y Teslas they're designed in such a way that the battery is integrated into the chassis. Um, now, me not being technical in that level, that would seem to me to be a more expensive repair if something needs to to occur. Um, is that something that will get factored in? Yeah, so the, the way that all insurers in the market will better understand vehicles and vehicle risk is um, via Thatcham, who are a an independent research centre, and they will actually take any new vehicle in the market and and send out information to us to help us understand things like repairability. So, in the event of a of an accident, what does the repair look like for that vehicle? Now. Obviously, for for vehicles where there's a, a level of complexity for repair, for example, then that could well increase the cost in the event of a claim, and therefore mean that the 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 premium for that vehicle is higher. But that might be offset by something else. So if there's great safety features and great technology fitted to the car to make a crash less likely to happen then that might well balance out. It's all about the kind of range of factors associated with the vehicle rather than just one particular area. Is there such a thing as, now I'm going to use the phrase absolute premium, and by that I mean if I ask 10 insurers for the same cover for the same individual for the same vehicle, I will get 10 different premium quotes. Surely the risk, i.e. the potential exposure, is the same. Shouldn't the base premium be the same everywhere? What what causes differing prices? 
So there'll be a few things that'll that'll make different prices. One of them will be an insurer's appetite to offer cover. So different insurers will be looking to provide cover for different customers. And so they might be more competitive for certain types of coverage. So for example, we're not a sports car underwriter as such. You know, we're we're not looking to offer coverage for high value sports cars because actually those customers need a really specific type of coverage and support in the event of a claim. So we we wouldn't potentially offer a price um, and certainly wouldn't be competitive for those customers. But if you went to a specific sports car insurer, they would likely be really competitive and, and offer that customer a great product and a great price. So there'll be an element of that. There'll also be an element of of the information that that insurer already knows about that vehicle or that customer. So for example, an insurer might have a, a direct relationship with a vehicle manufacturer where they get lots of great information about repairability, which helps them reduce their their costs associated with that vehicle and therefore they can offer a more competitive price and there'll be a whole host of things around that that will allow them to differentiate themselves in the market so I think there are lots of reasons that there will be different prices what that insurer wants to write who they want to offer cover to and then what they know about the quote at the point at which you're inputting your information. So am I right in thinking that a typical premium would be made up of a number of, I'll I'll use the word factors, but there's the factor that's related to the repairability of the vehicle, for example. There's the factor related to the risk associated with the driver or drivers. There's the factor associated with the risk associated with where the car is garage where it's parked whether it's in an area as you say that has potential gangs uh, going around is is there a sort of a formula for putting these together or is it very much fluid in any given situation do you say well half the premium is a result of the location 20% is the repairability 20% is etc cetera, etc cetera. does does that sort of make any sense uh, I, I I know the question you're answering. Unfortunately, asking. Unfortunately, it, it's not that simple. It, it's very much more complex. So, it will be entirely specific to an insurer, and it will relate to the way that they choose to to price and the the weight they put on specific factors. So that would be completely unique to each insurer. And I, I'm afraid I don't think it would break down anywhere near as as simply as, as you've mentioned. <laughs> I didn't think it would, but it's worth a try anyway. Talk to me about excess amounts, excess payments. How How is it that if I say I'll pay you £100 uh, extra towards the cost of a, a repair or a claim, that it will radically reduce the the premium by by an amount. How how does that math work? The voluntary excess that any customer selects is a way for them to potentially manage their premium. Obviously, I I do want to say up front, it, it, it is obviously something that means they will need to find potentially some money at point of claim. So it won't be for everyone. But when... 
a customer makes the choice to do that, what they're effectively doing is is reducing their the average cost of claim for them as an individual. So they're saying if there was a thousand pound repair for any normal customer in this scenario, I would only cost you nine hundred pounds. So then what that would happen is obviously feed into the risk premium model associated with that customer and then potentially a, a cheaper premium would come out. Unfortunately, again, it's it's not a straight line, £100 equals X percentage off, um, because for every customer, it will look a little bit different. But what it does do is give customers the opportunity to understand if there is a way to reduce their premium. Is there a certain amount of sort of leverage that you're trying to put in there by saying, or by putting a, a customer in a situation where they might say, well, if I make a claim through the insurance, I will have to pay, you know, five hundred pounds for this, but because I've because I've got a, a voluntary excess that's quite large. Whereas if the voluntary excess was smaller, the amount I'm having to pay is is less. Therefore, because my ex, my voluntary excess is larger, I may not actually put a claim through at all, and that's a benefit to you as an insurer. So some of the smaller claims that maybe would have been made with a lower voluntary excess maybe wouldn't be made with a high voluntary excess? Um, that would never be our intention. Um, excesses are not designed to be a barrier to claiming and we actually monitor very closely to make sure they're not. We would also make sure that we were monitoring vulnerability, so ensuring that customers um, who are perhaps displaying a behaviour where they're increasing a voluntary excess and then potentially going to leave themselves in a difficult position at point of claim, we'll make sure that we we don't allow that to happen. Effectively, we, we make sure our excesses are affordable and that customers are fully informed of, of what they would pay in the event of a claim. Um, it's also really important to us to make sure that um, our products always offer value. And part of that is making sure that for example, a customer's excess is never higher than the value of their vehicle. So we don't end up in a situation where somebody can't make a claim. Now, the, the choice of an individual as to whether to put in a claim or not is obviously entirely up to them. But we definitely wouldn't want to drive the situation where customers are thinking that their excess was a barrier to them making a claim. Here's a situation that happens to me every year, and you, you may not be able to answer this question, and if you can't, that's fine. But here's what happens. I get quoted um, an insurance premium with the company I'm with, but um, by calling them, I can usually get that premium reduced. Now, it happened with LV this, this year. I was quoted 407, gave them a call, reduced it to 386. How does that happen, and why does that happen? So I think the the right to haggle um, and the right for customers to be able to call up and haggle with their insurers is something that the regulator has specifically called out as something they want to allow for. So they want customers to call up and have a discussion at renewal with their insurers. Um, how does it happen? <laughs> well, it, it you know we, we're aware we that customers expect to be able to talk to us about their premium. And so we we will be in that position. We 
like to think that at Renewal, we are offering a, a good, fair price to customers. But obviously, if, if a customer is not happy with that price and they call us to discuss it, we'll, we'll have that discussion. Now, that might be something that is 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 something that, that you wish you didn't do. Um, but it is one from from our perspective that has been carved out as something that the we are offering as a service so that customers can talk to us at point of renewal. Now that that makes a lot of sense. I should have started this conversation by asking, do you drive electric yourself? No, I have um, a plug-in hybrid, but I haven't gone full electric yet. Okay, so let's let's put ourselves in the situation where you've made the choice, you're going to go electric and you're going to get um, an insurance quotation to, to cover the car. From my listener's point of view, what are the steps they should go through to get the best cover at the lowest premium? What, what steps would you do to ensure that you're getting the best premium for or the lowest premium for the coverage that you needed? So I think that there's a couple of elements that I would, I would recommend to anybody. I do think shopping around is important. So I think it is worth seeing what's out there in the market. Price comparison sites are a useful tool, but they are only one tool and there are a number of ways to access insurance. Um, so it's worth thinking about your vehicle purchase journey. You know, So for example, we have a, um, a electrics, which I, I know you speak to my colleague, Jill, and electrics will offer the opportunity for people to kind of have a one-stop shop for purchasing a vehicle, purchasing their insurance um, and their charging solution all in one go. And I think it's well worth exploring the insurance opportunities when, when you purchase your vehicle to understand if that's the most cost-effective way to insure your vehicle. And then I think taking the time to to look at the different insurance propositions out there and almost take money off the table to start with and say, okay, what what is it I actually want coverage for? So there are going to be a number of insurers who will offer standard car insurance on an EV. So you need to make a decision about whether it's important for you to have coverage for charging cables, for example, if your car charging cables are stolen or somebody trips over your cables and you're subject to a, a liability claim. It's also really important to understand the additional non-insurance benefits that come with, with some insurance products. So are those important to you as an individual? Will they perhaps take money out of your motoring elsewhere? And then I think you can you can compare price. And I think this is where trying to make your quotes as consistent as possible is really helpful. It's really hard to compare apples with apples if you do things on a different day and you put in slightly different details. But actually, if you you know if you're able to devote an afternoon, for example, or an hour to doing your research, you'll you'll get quotes on the same day at the same point in time when you're thinking in the same way. And then I think for me, it's it's making sure you're looking at an insurer who you can really trust to be there at the point at which you make a claim and you really need them. Because ultimately, that's what insurance is. Insurance is putting you right when you've had potentially a really unimaginable situation happen. And so actually, it's about have they got the repair capabilities in their claims network? 
are they a company I can trust and I can talk to? And all of that should come together and, and hopefully give you a fairly good view of, of what works for you as an individual. Excellent. I like that. I think there's some great, uh, great suggestions in there. Final question from me on this section. Tell me something about the insurance industry that most people who don't work in the industry would be surprised to hear. I hope people wouldn't be surprised to hear it, but I, I do always want to be very open about the fact that everybody who I've ever worked with in the insurance industry genuinely wants to help people, genuinely wants to take people out of these unimaginably difficult situations and get them back on their way and and really help people um, at really difficult points in their lives. Um, and I think there's sometimes this perception that, that, that we're an industry that's quite closed. And actually, my experience of everyone I've ever worked with is actually everyone genuinely cares about our customers and, and, and the people who rely on us to make sure that they're in the best place possible. And I think the amount that we do as an industry to support anyone that we possibly can is is perhaps something that, you know, we, we maybe we don't really talk about that much, but claims and, and putting people right is, is kind of the bread and butter of what we do. And I think our industry level response and particularly LV's response to some of the big kind of global events that we've had over the last few years. So our response to the conflict in Ukraine, our um, response to the, the pandemic just kind of showed how without question as an industry, we will we'll put people and customers when they need us right at the, at the front of everything we do. I think that's a fantastic answer. Thank you very much. Alex, thanks for your time. I really appreciate that. No problem. A couple of takeaways from this for me. As a general rule, insurance companies will price EVs at a higher premium than fossil fuel cars. The reason is twofold. Firstly, the cars themselves are generally more expensive on a like-for-like basis. Sure, your BMW 7 Series gas guzzler is more expensive than your Vauxhall Mocha E on an actual basis, but generally, comparing like-for-like, EVs have a higher purchase price and hence a higher replacement price. Secondly, EVs have more expensive repairs. The design of EVs doesn't always lend itself easily to repairs. Consider some of the more modern Tesla Model Ys where the battery is actually integrated into the chassis of the car. If the chassis gets damaged, that means the car battery itself is damaged. Even though replacing a battery is something that rarely happens, when it does, it's expensive. Likewise, if you're in, say, an I-Pace and you end up being rear-ended by someone, if the rear-end collision damages the battery, that's a high replacement cost you wouldn't have for a similar accident in, say, the Jaguar F-Pace. Thirdly, insurance premiums can go up for reasons totally outside the control of the driver. Alex mentioned two specific instances which will have an effect. Uh, parts increasing in price and the theft risk increasing in an area due to, say, gangs targeting specific cars. We know this happened to Hyundai Konas in one part of the country recently. So don't be annoyed if that's what happens to your premium. The other thing to note is that it's always worth speaking to your insurance company at renewal time. They're often willing to take a calculated hit to the premium to keep your business, which is why I was able to take £407 premium and drop it down to 386 just for the price of a phone call. In fact, if you don't make that call, you're effectively leaving money on the table 
from which the insurance company is benefiting. So the next thing that has to be said is that not everybody needs to sort out their own EV insurance. If you're one of those people who went for a subscription service like Onto, you'll get insurance included as part of the subscription. For some of the bigger, more expensive cars, that can be something of a game changer, but not necessarily for the big ones. This is what podcast co-founder Simon did. He was paying almost £500 a month on a car loan for an i3, a BMW i3, plus insurance and charging on top. He swapped to a Renault Zoe with Onto, and he ended up paying £370, including insurance, servicing, and all public charging. Yeah, that went up shortly afterwards to £450 a month, but that's still way less than he was paying for the loan, insurance, and charging on his i3. But if you're not one of those that likes to swap your EV every so often, then you're probably going to want to sort out insurance. A lot of insurance policies have a wrong fuel cover for if you stick diesel into your petrol or vice versa. Obviously, with an EV, this isn't an issue. So should we be paying for that sort of coverage or should that be there in the premium if we're in an EV? Examples of this include Direct Line, who've partnered with Zoom to provide an EV bundle. This includes cheap or discounted charging with Osprey Charging and BP Pulse, discounted parking with QPark, discount on co-charger sessions for 12 months, and other similar items. Also, as Alex said, LV have an all-in-one offering to sort out your car, home charger, and insurance at the same time. When looking at insurance for your EV, check to make sure it specifically covers things such as damage to the battery, uh, damage or theft to your Type 2 or granny charging cables. So to summarise, insurance is something of a necessary evil and a bit of a dark art, but the best way to get the best quote is to use price comparison sites, make identical requests on the same day to different companies for quotes, look at whether voluntary excess is something you can use to your advantage, and make sure you're not leaving money on the table by ensuring you've got the cover you need for the vehicle you have. Misfueling cover in an EV isn't useful, but cover for replacement charging cables is. Many, many thanks to Alex for her time and expertise. It's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with your listeners. Record levels of solar energy generation saved the EU almost $29 billion in fossil gas imports this summer, according to a new report. With Russia's invasion of Ukraine severely threatening gas supplies to Europe and both gas and electricity prices at record highs, the figures show the critical importance of solar power as part of Europe's energy mix, Ember, an energy think tank, says. Ember's analysis of monthly electricity generation data shows a record 12.2% of the EU's electricity mix was generated from solar power between May and August last year. This exceeds the electricity generated from wind, 11.7%, and hydro, 11%, and it's not far off the 16.5% of the electricity generated from coal. The record 99.4 terawatt hours the EU generated in solar electricity this summer meant it didn't need to buy 20 billion cubic metres of fossil gas. Based on average daily gas prices from May to August, this equates to almost $29 billion in avoided gas costs, Emma calculates. And that's fantastic news. The EV Musings podcast is sponsored by Zapmap. The go-to app for EV drivers in the UK, which helps EV drivers search, plan, and pay for their charging. ZapMap is free to download and use with subscription plans for enhanced features such as using ZapMap in car, on CarPlay, or Android Auto. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. 
If you want to contact me, I can be emailed at evmusings at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at MusingsEV. If you want to support the podcast and newsletter, please consider contributing to becoming an EV Musings patron. The link is in the show notes. Don't want to sign up for something on a monthly basis? If you enjoyed this episode, why not buy me a coffee? Go to coffee.com slash evmusings and you can do just that. ko-fi.com slash evmusings. Takes Apple Pay too. I have a couple of ebooks out there if you want something to read on your Kindle. So, you've gone electric. It's available on Amazon Worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. So, you've gone renewable. It is also available on Amazon for the same 99p, and it covers installing solar panels, a storage battery, and a heat pump. Why not check them out? Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps raise visibility and extend our reach in search engines. If you've reached this part of the podcast and are still listening, thank you. Why not let me know you've got to this point by tweeting me at MusingCV with the words, call them at renewal time, hashtag if you know you know, nothing else. Thanks as always to my co-founder Simon. You know, he asked me recently if I could have one unchangeable right or ability, what would it be? I told him I'd like an eye on the end of my toe so I could look up drain pipes. But when I asked him the same question, the answer really surprised me. The right to haggle. Thanks for listening. Bye.